Have you heard? 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 Welcome to another edition of Have You Heard? I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, our topic today is a very particular creation myth. Do you know what a creation myth is? I know what everything is, Jennifer. Well, I was going to ask you if you've if there has ever been a story that you've been completely convinced that it's true, such that you become part of propagating it, right? You you believe in it, you blithely tell friends and coworkers that that this this particular version of the world is true. Has that ever happened to you? No. In this as with so many things, my co-host Jack Schneider really does occupy a rarefied plane. <laughs> <laughs> well, the creation myth that we're going to be talking about today has to do with the gentleman that, according to legend, first came up with the idea of charter schools. And that would be former president of the American Federation of Teachers, Albert Shanker. It all started with a 1988 speech that he gave at the National Press Club. And I was actually able to find the audio of that speech. Let's take a listen. Thank you very much. We're meeting here today, and I'm addressing you because it is time once again uh, to take a major step forward in trying to improve the schools of our nation. Five years ago, a nation at risk and numerous other reports were published. We in the American Federation of Teachers were open to the criticisms presented in those reports, and our response was an unprecedented one in the educational community. We said that we were willing to talk, we were willing to consider, we were willing to negotiate. Um, we were open to discuss change in our schools. So, Jack, your trip in the time machine this episode is going to be pretty short. You're headed back to the 80s, to 1983, which, as I'm sure you know, was a key year in education history. I'm talking, of course, about a nation at risk. Well, the thing about a nation at risk is that it put teachers in a position they had never been in before. And so Shanker was really forced to think on his feet here. Uh, right? A nation at risk, for the first time, begins to frame from, from the, the seat of federal power uh, the nation's schools as being abysmal failures. Never mind that they weren't and they aren't. Uh, but the, the Nation at Risk report got major traction. Uh, and the, the line that stands out to me is, if an unfriendly foreign power had attempted to impose on America the mediocre educational performance that exists today, we might well have viewed it as an act of war. And that kind of rhetoric has been shaping educational policy and educational reform for the past 35 years. The Nation at Risk came out in 1983, and it actually took a little while uh, for policymakers and, and reform elites to figure out how to make use of it. it. It didn't get immediate traction, but they realized through a nation at risk and through other similar sky is falling reports uh, and then eventually non-evidence-based denouncements of the public schools that, that they could generate significant political will for their pet projects if the system was failing. Right, If the system is succeeding, 
then the solution is, well, we ought to tinker with this. It's working. Let's 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 not break it. Um, but if the system is completely broken, then anything goes. Uh, and so Shanker was put in this position uh, where suddenly uh, his constituents uh, were the problem. Uh, and of course, teachers are not in the the place to shape educational policy. They're receivers of policy. Um, but as the problem, they needed to figure out how to not lose total control over their workplaces uh, and over the schools that they, of course, know best, despite uh, their limited powers in shaping those spaces. Uh, and so Shanker tried to capture this policy, right? Tried to capture charters and then pivot uh, and, and and reframe charters as what he wanted them to be, and certainly as something they can be. Um, but he ultimately was not as successful as he might have wished if he was successful at all. We have a special guest who's going to join us now. Rachel Cohen writes for the American Prospect, where she covers, among other things, charter schools, unions, and the complicated intersections between the two. Rachel recently wrote an essay for the journal Democracy called The Untold History of Charter Schools, where she unravels the myth that charters were the brainchild of Albert Shanker and the teachers' unions. Rachel, can you just start by walking us through this myth? So the Shanker myth is this idea that charter schools, these independently managed, publicly funded schools, were created originally put on the national stage by Albert Shanker, the legendary president of the American Federation of Teachers. Um, The idea that we hear so often today is that Shanker's vision for charter schools um, you know, over time was lost, but originally that he gave this speech in 1988 at the National Press Club where he outlined his vision. Uh, he proposed, you know, schools where teachers could experiment with their craft, where they could try out new, uh, pedagogical approaches and, you know, act as real research and development labs that could then, um, you know, bring new and innovative practices back into traditional public schools. And as you describe in your essay, virtually none of this turns out to be true. I want you, if you don't mind, I want you to read to us a few lines from your piece. There's only one problem with the idea that charters started with Schenker in his speech. It's almost completely wrong. Schenker didn't invent the concept of charters. He wasn't part of the long-running campaign to popularize them. His significant contribution was the term charter school, except he used it to describe a very different, loosely related idea. Oh, and he didn't invent that term either. The truth is that the modern fight over education form has changed less than the people fighting would have us believe. Who invented charter schools? The same groups, it turns out, that are charter's strongest backers today. Business-oriented moderates and technocrats focus on deregulation, disruption, and the hope of injecting free market dogmas into the public sector. One of the things that's so fascinating about this myth is just how widespread it is. I've repeated it. As you reveal in your essay, you subscribe to it. Lots of people have bought into this. I did not propagate the Shanker myth in any way, so I just want to put that out there. We started out this episode by listening to a little bit of audio from that famous Shanker speech that supposedly launched the charter school movement. Tell us what you found when you started digging into the history of charter schools, particularly in Minnesota. I started uh, looking into this because, you know, I, you know, tweet a lot about 
charter schools and unions because that's something I cover. Um, and in 2016, uh, Will Stansel, who works at the Institute of Metropolitan Opportunity at the University of Minnesota, um, said, hey, you should read Ember Reichgott's book. Um, you know, she was the Minnesota state senator who sponsored the nation's first charter school law. Um, he knew I covered those topics, and he said reading it had really made him think that the origin of charters uh, you know, actually didn't have much to do with unions. So I grew very curious about that. Um, when I started reading the book, you know, I did very quickly realize that all of these different kind of timelines that I had sort of just accepted at face value didn't add up. But, you know, what is clear from her book is how this effort had been moving uh, significantly before that point. And, you know, the different legislatures and people like Ted Goldery in Minnesota who had been um, organizing and issuing reports and recommendations and policy papers uh, to push school choice and to push contracting in education and sort of situating it within this larger movement of deregulation that we've been seeing you know, since the 70s. You just mentioned Ted Coldery, which is a prominent name in the charter school movement. But he turns out to have kind of an interesting backstory. Ted Coldery uh, is this guy who, he had been working on these issues, not just in public education, although later he did sort of start focusing that more exclusively, but he was looking at different ways to change how public services were provided, mainly through choice and contracting, since the early 1970s. We're looking at the origin of charter schools in this episode and the enduring myth that the teachers' unions that are often fiercely opposed to charters were actually the first to propose them. But as we're hearing from you, Rachel, charter schools seem to have had quite a few dads. You know, I'd like to put in a plug here for George H.W. Bush as the father of charter schools. That's not a particularly common view, but Bush, we might recall, was... Uh, vice president while Reagan was in the White House making his push for vouchers and saw that vouchers were a losing proposition. And Bush was a pragmatist, right? So he saw that instead of choosing between the unregulated free market and the heavy hand of government, that you could uh, you know, marry them together through this vision of entrepreneurial activity uh, being carefully monitored by the state. That's the vision that George H.W. Bush put forward for charter schools. And then he also poured the first money into uh, charter demonstration projects. So, uh, you know, through the New American Schools Development Corporation, which, again, was a kind of hybrid of uh, the, the free market and government um, Bush funded the Community Learning Centers of Minnesota project. And that was the first project, uh, which in Bush's words, uh, you know, were based on the charter school concept, um, you know, a variation of the school choice approach, something like that, uh, where he's basically saying, you know, this is school choice, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. This is what we've been talking about in terms of opening up education to the market. But... Um, you know, it's going to be more controlled. It's going to be overseen. There's going to be, you know, some kind of public oversight here. Uh, and in doing that, 
Bush really created the model uh, that would end up being replicated over and over and over. You know, we're so used to hearing the language of the market used now to talk about schools and education, but it's it's kind of it's kind of startling to go back to this earlier period where people are really. Uh, just trying out that language for the first time, and they they seem very aware that they're they're using a new way to talk about schools, and and you almost get the sense that they're they're testing out different arguments. I definitely think un- understanding that uh, charters were attractive to moderate Republicans and moderate Democrats at that time, um, in part, sort of to respond to vouchers. Is is a really important history. One of my favorite parts was was learning that uh, Bill Clinton was originally on the fence about whether to support charters. He was getting pushback from teachers unions, and he uh, was traveling around with Al Fromm at the time, and, and called Will Marshall, the co-founder of DLC, and uh, you know, but they convinced him, oh, this is a this is a way to seem proactive on education policy. This is a way that we can push back on on vouchers, and this is a way that we can avoid catering to the more money dem crowd. Um, and, and I, but I think one of the most kind of important, um, differences between now and then about the coalition is back then there was this really bipartisan, powerful narrative that choice and competition could be a way to improve schools without increasing taxes and spending. One thing that I think is worth noting here, uh, as we talk about, coalitions or consensus is that at the federal level there has been enduring support for uh, the same kinds of policies that again were first put forward uh, by George H.W. Bush who seized on the narrative of crisis that emerged from the Nation at Risk report um, you know, more successfully so than Reagan did and knew how to build uh, a Consensus, a bipartisan consensus around education reform, and established a framework that endured across pretty different administrations. And so mm-hmm. uh, we see Bill Clinton pushing forward standards and accountability and pushing for charter schools. Uh, George W. Bush, who was in many ways quite a different president from Clinton, mm-hmm. um, pushing those same policies forward. And then again, a swing back uh, left to Barack Obama, who in turn was a pretty different president from George W. Bush, but who again continued support for charter schools. In fact, there's this wonderful letter by the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools that uh, was written this year, and it came out the day after Valentine's Day, which I find sweet. And it says, Dear Presidents, we thank you for supporting charter schools. And then it's got quotes from Clinton, Bush, and Obama, all of whom sound pretty similar in terms of talking about educational entrepreneurs, innovative methods, unique flexibility, uh, you know, high standards, uh, equity, and... This message, uh, you know, it's so powerful in education reform, and it it is the air that educational reformers breathe to the extent that many of them don't recognize that uh, there are a lot of assumptions embedded in this. And so, I think that it's really interesting to look at charters as one of the cornerstone policies that have that. that that have come out of uh, this policy environment where 
there is just an unquestioned belief in the power of uh, entrepreneurship, the importance of top-down monitoring uh, paired with uh, you know this this bottom-up entrepreneurship uh, that the government should oversee but not engage in any uh, direct form of governance, um, and that that that's uh, it's not something that people like Ted Coldery invented, but it's mm-hmm. something that made his ideas uh, and the ideas of others that were on the shelf really ready for prime time uh, when it came to the late '80s, early '90s, where we see this vision really, uh, you know, coming into its full bloom. Uh, and so, you know, I think one of the important parts of this story is that you know Coldery himself. Uh, is a pretty minor player, as as the the brains behind charter schools, um, which speaks so powerfully to this neoliberal neo uh, conservative consensus, um, which made his idea powerful only about a decade after it was first uh, generated. So we have a vote for George H.W. Bush as the father of the charter school movement. Ted Coldery is on the list. Bill Clinton is there. Rachel, you have a great line in your essay. You write that charters do have a founding father, but he's a quintessentially neoliberal policy entrepreneur who has mostly kept his name out of the history books. Part of why I wanted to read that line out loud is that my co-host Jack Schneider has banned me from saying the word neoliberal on the air. Now, Jennifer, let's be fair. I haven't banned you from using the word neoliberal. I have banned you from initiating a conversation about neoliberalism. So if someone else brings it up, that's okay. I use that word, you know, knowing that for some people it can be very, uh, what do you say, triggering or, or uploaded. Or, <laughs> very, no, very upsetting. I, I needed I, a warning I before of, Jennifer I said it. it. Um, I'm aware, you know, I see it misused all the time. I see it, you know, used in all sorts of contexts. And But I felt in this case, you know, if neoliberal has any meaning at all, it's precisely those who seek political solutions that rely predominantly on free market thinking to reduce alliances with traditional democratic allies like teachers, unions, and to avoid spending more money and the appearance of, quote, big government. So I, I really did think about this, um, you know, and I'm not even calling, like, I, you know, I'm not calling everything neoliberal, but I am saying that, you know, the deal, the Democratic Leadership Council, and they self-identified as neoliberals, you know, all these people did until it became kind of more politically toxic to do so. Um, But, you know, those Democrats who were actively looking for ways to reduce their ties to teachers unions, to avoid looking for reforms that involve spending more money, and to, like, try to figure out how to to invoke choice and competition to, like, achieve their goals, all those people were the, you know, major forces pushing this forward. And so that is why, you know, I think, at least in thinking about this historically, that's a useful and accurate word and not, you know, uh, you know, misplaced. But I, but I, uh, and, and I would defend that for people who are like, oh, it doesn't mean anything. It's like, if it means anything, it means this. So I guess the big question here is, why does it matter whether the founding father of charter schools was Shanker or George H.W. Bush or a quintessentially neoliberal policy entrepreneur? I, I snuck the word in one more time. I think that it's important to understand the history today 
not because, not to say there are not, you know, true progressive people in the charter movement or, or you can't find progressive schools. I'm sure, you know, all of us can point to, uh, people we know individually involved in the movement. Um, but I think one of the, one of the big takeaways that I had from sort of looking into this further is just that, you know, the real, like, power of the movement, um, has never been, you know, from Shanker or from those people who are pushing those ideas. It's always been, um, you know, the moderate Democrats, the business community, the moderate Republicans, uh, the people who were interested in bringing the broader ideas about deregulation and accountability to the public education sector, um, the people motivated by Ronald Reagan's The Nation at Risk report. Uh, you know, those were kind of the people that got this idea off the ground and pushed it forward. And while, you know, it's still, there are lots of people involved in the movement, especially over 26 years. So it's, you know, it is a diverse group, but I just, I think the, the notion that this has been hijacked, um, I think is, is not really true. You know, it's really interesting hearing you talk through this because, of course, Reagan, even though Reagan had commissioned the Nation at Risk report, didn't quite know what to do with it. Uh, And Reagan, as a big advocate of the free market, wanted to turn uh, public school uh, allotments into tuition vouchers for parents. But Bush was so much savvier than that and married the free market together with government saying that schools would neither be turned over to the free market nor uh, you know, governed with the heavy hand of um, state and federal government, that the, that the state would, um, mm-hmm. would manage the process uh, and would oversee and regulate. And charters fit perfectly in that vision and that was such a powerful mm-hmm. vision for exactly the reason you described that it created this lasting consensus between neoliberals and neocons. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I think that a, a metaphor here, and Jennifer said that her role today was going to be to be the gardener to keep us from going into the weeds. But I think the metaphor here is that. Mm-hmm. You know, the the soil was really fertile for a particular vision, and the people yeah. have, people like Shanker have continued to plant a seed that is about innovation and about um, laboratory style experimentation that would feed back into the broader public school system. But that's not what the soil supports here. The soil really supports a sort of deregulated free market approach with minimal government oversight. Which leads to, you know, any sort of progressive experimental laboratory style approach being swamped by, uh, you know, a KIPP style uh, test score producing entrepreneurial corporate style form of charter. That speech that Shanker gave in 1988 is really pretty remarkable. He lays out this vision for a kind of radical teacher-led experimentation, and he takes aim at everything from standardized testing to what he sees as unfair competition between students. I want to play a, a short clip from the very end of the speech. And if it works, and I believe it will, over time, this is, not, this is no magic bullet. This is a way in which people can do things more intelligently, something that's not going to harm kids. They're going to be able to try all sorts of things. I think that other teachers are going to say, hey, that looks pretty good to me. We'd like to try it next year. It's a way of building by example 
It's a way not of shoving things down people's throats, but enlisting them in a movement and in a cause. I believe that this proposal will take us from the point where the number of real basic reform efforts can be counted on the fingers of two hands, and that if we meet here again a few years from now, we'll be able to talk about thousands and thousands of schools in this country where people are building a new type of school that reaches the overwhelming majority of our students. Obviously, things did not turn out the way that Shanker was talking about here. We have thousands of charter schools, and there is a movement, but the groups that make up that movement do not seem to be pushing for laboratories of innovation. Why is that? And and those groups are fighting largely for a vision shaped by the free market, uh, because um, that's, that's something that motivates people to fight, unlike laboratories of experimentation. Nobody's out there fighting for laboratories. There is no constituency that is willing to lobby and fight for that. Uh, And in addition to the free market piece, I would just add there is uh, the national legislation mandating that states measure uh, schools in terms of their performance on standardized tests in math and English in grades three through eight as well as once in high school. That has a very powerful influence on what charters end up looking like since that is what they are held accountable for. I believe that a lot of people didn't know what um, charters and the movement would become, but I think some people had a very specific vision, and I think what we have today looks a lot like that. So, you know, sort of balancing those two things that both, yes, people could be surprised that we have some of the things that we have, but it really is not so far off from what Ted Coldery wanted and maybe what George H.W. Bush imagined and so forth. That was Rachel Cohen, a writer with The American Prospect and the author of a recent essay in the journal Democracy called The Untold History of Charter Schools. Definitely check that out. And we'll be right back with a few final thoughts. Jennifer, I'm going to read you something. Promoting innovation was the original purpose of charter schools. As first envisioned by union leader Albert Shanker and others, charters would benefit the educational system as a whole by serving as laboratories for new ideas. With higher levels of autonomy, charters would have the freedom to experiment. Some of those experiments would be incorporated into traditional public schools. Others, which might not easily translate into traditional public schools, would live on at a smaller scale. That's the first paragraph. Can I guess who wrote it? Go ahead. I, that reads like a Jack Schneider to me. That's that's a Schneider paragraph right there. So uh, so it turns out that I swallowed a bit of the Shanker medicine myself. Um, I still like this piece that I wrote uh, about the the power of charters to improve the system as a whole. But I guess I would go back and uh, make a few tweaks there. And um, if you think of anything else you've been wrong about, I would appreciate it. I'll tweet them at Thank you. Thanks for joining us. This is another edition of Have You Heard? I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. Schneider.